0: Well, Good morning. Good to see so many half-smiling faces. If you're with us, there here for the first time. We are glad you are a part of what we're doing here. Uh, If you have any questions about us, and you may or may not have questions, but there's lots of information for you out at the Connection Center, I encourage you to stop by and talk to one of the staff members there. They'd love to fill you in on any details that are uh, going on around our church. If you're online, thanks for, for checking in with us. Hope you feel a part of what we're doing, even though You're at distance this morning. I just want to reiterate a couple things Bill just said. The Ask Pastor Matthew time is special to me because it's a time for us to connect, so I encourage you to make it. Even if you've been there before, the questions seem to be new each time, and uh, it's a total open forum to ask any question about sermons, about futures, about past, about anything that might be on your mind, so I'm happy to have those interactions with you from four to five. Next Sunday afternoon is going to be very fun, but next Sunday during the service we have a couple very special things. Uh, We are going to set a regular schedule of celebrating communion on the first Sunday of the month. So next Sunday we'll be celebrating communion as a church family, so I hope you come and make that a special uh, time for you. Uh, But also we're going to be sending off some of our students from Boca Christian. They dedicate a week uh, each year to serving throughout the area and region and uh, next week, we're going to have some of those students up here. We're going to hear from some of the staff, and we're going to be praying for them to send them off on uh, their week of mission, hopefully to get some reports back from them when they return. But I encourage you to take part of that as well. It's going to be a special time for not just our church family, but our school family as well as we, uh, we prepare those students for their trip away. Many of you know that yesterday was the two-year anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine, and uh, it, it has impacted our church family some individuals in our church family are from Ukraine or have come here since the war or before the war. And so we know this is a war that we all watch, but it's also a war that settles on our hearts and our minds. So I just want to spend a few minutes in prayer uh, about that as we come into the word this morning. So if you bow your heads with me, let's pray. Father, we know that you are large. You are great. You are awesome. You are powerful. Your wisdom is beyond what we can comprehend. Your power is without limits. Your compassion and nearness is more intimate than anything we experience. God, you know our hearts and you know everyone's hearts all at once, and that's unfathomable to us. But we come to you as God because we trust you. And we trust that you are working something in this world. And our minds and our hearts have been collectively on Ukraine for these years and uh, the conflict, the war, the death, the suffering, the mourning, the life change the uh, the foundational adjustments that have been happening in that country, Father, there seem so far because they 're news stories to us, God, but their people and their lives and their parents and their grandparents and children and grandchildren, all being impacted by everything that is happening in that region, and Lord, our hearts go out to them, but our our hearts also cry out to you for peace, for uh, somehow resolution there. It's a complicated scenario, more complicated than we can even understand, but God, we know that you are intimately interested and involved, and so we trust that you are working out your glory in that situation. We pray particularly for our world lead partners that are in the region, that are ministering to either refugees or people in country. I pray that you would empower them today. I pray that you give them a sense of your presence, but also our connection with them uh, as partners. God, we pray additionally for the pastors of the churches in Ukraine, particularly in eastern Ukraine. I pray, Father, that you would give them a special ability to minister, not just the gospel, but in compassion. I pray that they would embody the spirit of the Lord Jesus as they care and they shepherd and they equip and they challenge and they encourage. I pray, Father, that you would do a great work there, God, we trust that you have great purposes for this and so we yield to your wisdom and we trust that you will give us clarity and understanding as to what you're doing. God, our hearts rest in you because you are a God that gives infinite peace. And so we wait and we long for that. And God, we come to your word collectively this morning because we want to hear from you. We know that it is your inspired uh, instruction. Uh, You have given it through your spirit, through the writers, to us that we might learn, that we might read, that we might understand, that we might be challenged, that we might be changed, that our minds might be shifted in the way they think about this and that. I pray, God, that you would help us refocus our minds and our attentions on the things that are of the utmost importance this morning. I pray that your word would speak clearly and powerfully to us. Uh, We open ourselves up for that, and we pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. We're going to start in the book of Acts this morning. We're back in this series called Elements where we're looking at the basic chemical building blocks of the church. Uh, so you remember chemistry class was one of those classes that maybe was a challenge to you was in chemistry in college that my mom realized that I had somewhat of a brain because it was the first time she sat in class in a 300-student lecture hall listening to to a lecture on chemistry, and she was entirely lost. I think it probably was about that time that I realized that I was almost entirely blind. So I needed glasses because I couldn't see chalkboard. Somehow I made it through that class. But chemistry was always an interesting subject because you look at one item, but it's actually composed of molecules that are connected and attracted and repulsing each other in such a way where strong bonds can be made. But it's these basic elements of chemistry that make up everything we see and don't see. And the church has similar elements, and we've been looking at these. We looked at the element of discipleship, which is the most critical post-conversion element that we have. Everything that we do as Christians is to be growing towards Christ-likeness. So it's a key element in that way. Last week, we looked at the element of worship. And the need for us to understand that from the beginning of our created moment, we were designed for one thing, and that is to bring the utmost glory to God. In the way that we serve, in the way that we give, in the way that we sacrifice, in the way that we relate, in the way that we sing, in the way that we pray, the way that we approach the Word of God, everything we do is ultimately, ultimately for, the God, for God's glory, for His praise, for His honor. This morning, we're going to look at a third element, and that is the element of relationship. For you who are older, you may remember the word fellowship, which oftentimes is connected with potluck. But we're going to talk about relationship because relationship is fundamental to the way that we are together. I use the word together a lot in this series because I want us to remember that we are a we. Maybe you noticed, even as we were singing this morning, that almost all of the pronouns in the songs were we's and us. It was a collective, it was intentional. It was a a desire for us to remember in our songs that we are together in this battle. We're together in this life. And so relationship becomes a a critical element in the way that we interact with each other on any given day. I had the great honor of growing up in the late 70s and 80s. And in those decades, if you were a, a partner of joy with me in that time, it was a great time because... The, uh, the boomers were enjoying the security of their nice neighborhoods and homes, which meant the kids were allowed to pretty much do whatever they wanted. We could climb around in the car without seatbelts. Uh, we could run amok in the neighborhood without supervision. Uh, big wheels were a big deal. But if you would go into a toy store in the 80s, you could find a lot of interesting things that you wouldn't be able to find today. One of them is home chemistry sets. Did anybody have... A chem craft magic lab at home. Anybody have one? Okay, there are some. For some reason, some person thought, let's give a box of chemicals to children. But don't worry, it's mystifying science sorcery for your home. You can, in, in, you can amaze your friends with special acts in your magic lab at home, but only under, if we could zoom in, we can't zoom in, but if you could zoom in on the warning, it's use only under adult supervision. Why? Because combinations of these chemicals could be harmful if misused. Well, the day that we were at the church putluck in our home, not home, but somebody else's home in the church, we acquired one of these chemical labs. There were parental units in the area, but they were enjoying pool, food, and us children, not under supervision, were about to misuse some of these chemicals. But we didn't think it was a big deal. What we were doing was just piling on a bunch of chemicals, and we thought that maybe if we lit with a match, (laughs) that it might be exciting. So, I mean, we're scientists, right? I mean, we studied school. We, We know what we're doing. Well, in a short form, the backyard was on fire. I don't know exactly who was holding the match, but it was very exciting to watch our parents scurry to attention, and somehow a salad bowl became filled with water, dousing the flames as they were spreading throughout the grass backyard. If you throw the elements together without thinking, they can cause explosions, so when we're looking at these elements, we're not just talking about piling them all on top of each other because the more, the merrier. No, we're supposed to understand the, the, uh, the, the, the specific nature of each of these elements and combine them in precision ways so that we can get the greatest life application out of them. That's what chemistry is about, not just throwing everything into a pile and lighting it, but rather connecting elements in critical ways, important ways, so that we can design things we could build things we can create things that are helpful for life this list of elements is no different and the key word through all of this discipleship being growing towards christ likeness together worship being pleasing the lord god together this morning relationship walking through life together that together piece is a reoccurring element and that's what we're going to focus on this morning we're going to end up in hebrews 12 but i want to look at the book of acts together If you want to turn to Acts chapter one, we'll begin there with their practice, talking about the first century church's practice of relationship. Let's have a moment of honesty. How many of you have actually been reading the book of Acts? Good for you, a lot of hands. I encourage you still, we're almost halfway through this series. The book of Acts, Acts chapter one through six is going to be kind of the background context for this whole series. And so we'll refer to it in different ways, but I encourage you to Read it. Read it repeatedly, maybe daily, at least weekly, and it will settle on your mind. And just so you know, it's going to be a regular theme for me to give you reading homework uh, because the more you read the Word, the more the Word's going to settle on your heart and your mind. The more it settles on your heart and mind, the more God is going to change you. The more God changes you, the more you'll be like Christ. The more you'll be like Christ, the more interconnected we will be as a community, and the more glory we'll bring to the Father. So reading the Word is an instrumental part in this. But if we're looking at the book of Acts, Acts is is the second chapter of Luke. So a lot of historians consider Acts more of a historical book. I consider it a fifth gospel because it is a continuation of Luke's gospel. At the end of the gospel of Luke, Jesus uh, has been resurrected. He has been walking with the the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He has gone into heaven. And we pick up at the story in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is there on the hillside, telling his disciples that he's going to go, that they need to go back to Jerusalem and wait, because the Spirit of God is going to come upon them. We pick up in Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey away. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, the best one, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simeon, or Simon the Zealot, Judas, James, all these were with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up. There were about 120 brothers present. And it's during that time and that gathering of 120, those being together, that they decided to replace Judas with one named Matthias. We jump in time to Acts chapter 2, where again they're together on the day of Pentecost. We celebrate that 50 days after the resurrection. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The Spirit of God came upon them. They began speaking in tongues that were known to those outside, and those outside who spoke different languages could hear those inside speaking in very clear language to them about the glory of God. And they were amazed, and Peter preached, and 3,000 came to faith. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayer's. those who are being saved. In chapter 3, we see Peter and John going into the temple, and there's a blind beggar there who is looking for gold or silver or some kind of handouts, and Peter gives him his hand and says, in the name of Jesus, I heal you. Stand up. His legs are strengthened, and he stands up rejoicing, praising God. The religious leaders are upset because this is not what is supposed to be happening the, the, the religious leaders noticed that they had been with Jesus. We talked about this last week. They were all praising God. We pick up at the end of the chapter in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were, all, were, uh, were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of, these, of their things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for the, the many, as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed each at, as any had need. It's an interesting time in history where God is moving powerfully to the people. He is uniting this gathering that's now, Luke tells us, 5,000 people strong. But yet they are together and they are united and they're living through life. They're walking through the challenges of the first century together, sharing. I wonder how far off we are from that. I mean, we can look at like, the logistics and say, okay, how often do we share and dist- and Do we have a pooled asset base, and do we really distribute things like that? But in our hearts, are we really together? Do we really walk through our lives seeing this as our people? That's what I want to be challenged by this morning as we move forward. There's some principles of relationship that we want to look at, but they're not found here exclusively. I want to use the writing of Hebrews. So if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12... Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to look at some principles of relationship. You have heard, you can understand, you can surmise on your own that it's important for us to be connected. The people around you right now, the people you interact with in groups, the people that you're in in other contexts, it's important for us to have a sense of togetherness in the community. In fact, it's this very quality, the quality of being together together, that perhaps is the singular signpost of God's incredible creativity. Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Writer of Hebrews, Paul, writes that that this experience, us not being like each other, maybe not even liking each other, but us being one with each other, is a declaration of the manifold wisdom of God. So somehow we are showing the world what God's regenerative work looks like in practice as we live that out. The question is whether or not we're doing that well. I want to be challenged by Hebrews together this morning because it has some principles for us that are very important. The book of Hebrews was written 30, 35 years after the resurrection. So we're, we're talking a little bit of time here, but the writer of Hebrews is concerned mostly by this time in history that the believers at the time are, are wandering away. They're really drifting. He uses this word picture of, of drifting away from the shore. It's a nautical term. And he's cautious throughout and warning very sternly at times in really scary ways sometimes, honestly, that we ought not drift away from the faith. But what's interesting about the author of Hebrews, particularly in chapter 12, is he does not say, see this as a singular effort, you and me following Christ and not falling away from the trail on our own. He sees it as a collective effort, that we are pursuing Christ-likeness together, and we are in relationship with each other, so we are responsible for each other. Pick up with me in Acts, or Hebrews chapter 12. In verse twelve. He says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God is we have a responsibility in relationship to strengthen one another. He begins and says, lift up the drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. As you age, your knees get a little bit wobbly, a little bit weaker, your ankles, your feet, your core, your hands, your arms, everything gets a little bit weaker and it's harder to function as that weakness sets in. Oftentimes as we age, the weakness leads to falling. The falling leads to broken bones. The broken bones leads to debilitation and oftentimes, unfortunately, death. When dealing with the elderly, we need to be careful that they don't fall. We need to be careful to strengthen the wobbly knees, strengthen the weak hands, strengthen those parts that are not functioning well. Here, the writer of Hebrews says, collectively, we are to... Uh, to lift up the drooping hands, and we are to strengthen each other in that process. We have a responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to function as a healthy body together, which means we need to be aware of each other, and we need to take action to strengthen each other. Obviously, you have to do this with inappropriate relationships. You need to do this when you've developed a sense of trust. But we should take on a responsibility for each other in the sense that we're giving each other strength to get through. This picture of wobbly knees and looping hands is very, uh, it's very clear for us. We can imagine, we can see what it looks like for someone to have weak knees and droopy hands. The writer of Hebrews says, in a spiritual sense, we ought not to allow those who have weak knees and hands to continue in that, but rather to strengthen them. But how do we do that? What is this picture describing of this droopy hands and the weak knees on a spiritual level? I think to understand it better, we need to look at Psalm 35, not a psalm, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah is writing about the destruction that is coming upon God's people. And he uses a similar phrase, which may be what educated the writer of Hebrews. Starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 35, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, and he will save you. So what is the drooping hand and the weak knees? The drooping hand and the weak knees is the person who has an anxious heart. It's the person who sees all of this destruction and demise coming, but does not see the hand of the Lord just behind. So in our work of strengthening one another, what we do when we are strengthening the weak knees and we're lifting up the drooping hands is we are reviving hope in each other. And we revive hope in each other By reminding each other about the greatness and the awesomeness of God. So that as we are going through trials, we are not becoming overly obsessed with the difficulty itself. But rather, we are seeing God pass the difficulty. And we are still able to rest in the fact that God is sovereign. And that gives us the energy to continue on. Jan and I lived in uh, Ohio for five years, and our home was situated up on a little bit of a rise. And then behind our house was a vacant farm. So it was like five acres of, of unused land behind us, which was glorious. There was a road. There's another neighborhood. And then it went up into uh, another uh, a hillside on the other side. So uh, the fall was a great time of year with the leaves changing and everything. We had a lot of windows on the back of the house, which is beautiful. But one thing I loved be- about being in Ohio was geese. Now, they weren't the geese that chased you at the park. These were geese that actually flew through the sky, and you could watch them fly in that interesting V formation. Scientists have done a lot of research on this. I was just, I got caught up in a, a YouTube video last night called Come Fly With Me, where scientists raised geese with a human like a mother. So there's a human from birth with these geese. They're actually training them to trust them, So that when the geese get old enough to migrate, they take kind of like a motorized hang glider and they fly with the geese as they migrate from Austria down to Italy. Fascinating. Seeing somebody in this hang glider of sorts with the V formation of the geese right behind them because they trust and follow. But the researchers were looking particularly at the efficiency of the birds flying in V formation. And they said a bird flying in in the V formation, the group of 25 birds, can fly 70% farther using the same energy as one bird by themselves. Just by nature of the science and the physics of the airflow. See, we're talking about chemistry and physics in church. I mean, this is fantastic. (laughs) But that word picture ought to stick with us. That if we go together, we can go much farther. We can do a lot more together if we are flying in unison. If our, our wings are flapping at the same time, if we're looking at the same goal. And the goal is God's amazing strength and God's sovereign plan. And if we keep that locked in our minds and we remind ourselves, each other of that rather, we can go further. It goes back to the discipleship element with having somebody walking beside you. If you have somebody with you, you can walk through life's challenges much, much better. But you need to build those relationships. You need to make those relationships. Those relationships don't just come free, they come at a cost the cost of your time, your convenience, your emotion. But the more you invest in that, strengthening one another, the farther we will go towards Christ likeness. And it looks like prayer at times, it looks like encouragement at times, it looks like a correction at times. It looks like tough love. It looks like strength giving. It looks like picking up and caring. It looks like pointing people to Christ. All of that is what's included in strengthening one another in relationship. We are better when we're interconnected. Second principle I see out of Hebrews 12 is that we ought to model righteousness, model righteous living for each other. He says, not just strengthen the, the hands and the weeks, but the, the knees. But goes on. He says, and make straight paths for your feet. Make straight paths for your feet. The other thing I picked up while I was in Ohio was a uh, is love too strong of a word. Love for NASCAR. Any NASCAR fans? There are a couple of races through the NASCAR series. Thank you. I see that hand. You can come forward for prayer after. There are a couple races during the NASCAR season that are restrictor plate races, which means the drivers have their foot on the floor and they are driving 200 plus miles per hour around the racetrack. So the name of the game on those, particularly the Daytona 500, is that you need to draft well. And there's the the physics of one car behind another that makes both cars go faster. But the key is for the person behind to follow right in the groove of the person in front of them. And if the person in front is moving out of the way or the person in the back is not following in line, then it messes up the airflow and it messes up the benefit of drafting. In some ways, relationships is spiritual drafting for us. It's us following in the grooves of the people who are before us. The writer of Hebrews says, make straight paths for your feet. Yes, it might might mean make sure you walk steadily and you don't step on anything wobbly. But I think what he's also saying is that we need to live such lives that people behind us are walking in our grooves. And together we are drafting each other towards greater Christ-likeness. But it requires, again, sacrifice. It requires submission. It requires a mutual relationship where you're giving and you're taking, not just taking. We need to model righteous living for one another. One of the best examples in Scripture of, of modeling is the Apostle Paul. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, how many of you are mature? How many of you think the person next to you thinks they're mature? As many of you who think you're mature, mature people don't talk about how good they are, so I get it that you're keeping your hand down. I think most of us think that we're fairly mature. If we think we're mature, and if anything, uh, uh, let's see, let those who are mature think this way, the way that he just described not looking back looking forward and if anything you think otherwise god will reveal that also to you only let us hold true to what has been attained what we have attained brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us look ahead to those that are before you those that are modeling righteous living and follow in their groove Follow in their track. Follow in their path. They've made a straight path if they've walked righteously. Walk behind them. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul realizes that there are some, there are many, perhaps, that have gone off the path and they're way out of no- man's land. They're not benefiting at all from any of the drafting that we are doing. But he says, "Take no mind of them, but rather look to those who have been faithful, those who have been setting the, the, the right path and follow after them, but also be the one that is setting the right path for the people behind you." So in these two passages, we see beside, we see before, we see behind. If you are walking faithfully behind people who are faithful, you will get out of the way of many of the traps. Not all of them, but many of the traps. You remember like I do when Ukraine started their counteroffensive, that the biggest problem was the minefields that the Russians had left in their cities. And so there was great effort and great loss at trying to create a path through these minefields so that the advancing armies could come behind safely. We need to be people who are clearing the mind path for those that are behind us. Paul says, if you think you're mature, this is your job. Gather people around you, make sure they're following you, and ask them to imitate you as you walk forward. Obviously, that requires some accountability on your part. It requires some honesty. It requires some faithfulness. It requires some hard work. This is not an easy task, being like Christ. It's a strenuous effort for life. Back to Hebrews for the third principle that we see about relationship. The third is that we ought to pursue peace with one another. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Does anybody want to see the Lord? You can't see him without holiness. And you have to strive... For peace. Pursue peace. This word is interesting. It is most often translated persecute. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that we ought to pursue with a frenzy peace with everyone. Paul speaks about this repeatedly in in his letter to the Romans. That we ought to pursue as far as it depends on us, live at peace with all men that we ought to pursue peace, that we ought not to let it uh, linger as something in the past, but we ought to drive forward to it. We see it in David. We see it in Peter. We see it in Paul. We see it in Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Somebody asked me last week, and he asked Pastor Matthew, what your favorite book of the Bible is. My favorite book is probably Ephesians, but if I could take only fragments of Scripture, I would probably take the Sermon on the Mount Because there's so much in here, and and as you read the New Testament, so many references go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says two things related to holiness and peace. In verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for what? They shall see God. Without the holiness, you will not see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God, or sons of God. We ought to be peacemakers, which is a harder work than peacekeeper, isn't it? Sometimes you walk into a situation, you're just trying to keep your children at bay, right? You want to make sure they don't strangle each other. You go to your room, you go to your room. But God does not just call us just to be peacekeepers. He calls us to be peacemakers. Somehow we are to be injecting ourselves To use his word, we are to be pursuing relentlessly the peace in relationship with each other. And that means getting into each other's lives. That means uh, getting a little bit messy at times because we're stepping in the middle of a situation rather than looking at it from the outside. But we are to strive for peace. This is what relationship means. We strive for peace with everyone. The last principle is the one that we oftentimes don't want to talk about and it's that we need to take responsibility for one another. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no one, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. If you're not familiar with that story, you need to read the book of Genesis again. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. See to it that no one falls short or that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I think we struggle with this principle so much because... For some reason, reason, being judgy has landed on the cardinal sin list. Maybe somewhere between gluttony and sloth, we have being judgy. That is that, don't judge me because, you know, this is my life. You, you don't have a voice in my life. And when you, when you are see, seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, you are in somebody's face about their relationship with God. You are confronting behavior, you're challenging them to do good behavior, you're encouraging them and praising them in the good that they're doing. You're looking at God's Word and you're saying, hey, your life doesn't measure up. You're getting up in their face about these things, and we have a responsibility to do this. The challenge is pressing without becoming identifying, uh, identified in the pressing. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine and we were talking about the responsibility that pastors feel in officiating weddings. I take the officiating of a wedding very seriously because up to now I have seen this as a moment where I'm standing before God and a couple and I'm watching them promise but I am standing with them bearing some of the responsibility so that I can stand with a clear conscience with God and say, Lord, you can bless these people because as far as I see it, They're ready, they're meant for each other, they're walking rightly, and they're on the right path. But I bear the responsibility. So when marriages that I've officiated in break up or falter, I feel it. I worked with a couple in Ohio for a long time through premarital counseling. And just a few weeks, months after they were married, she decided she didn't want to live married anymore. She, she didn't want to divorce. She just didn't want to live married. So she went back to her, her party scene life, and she went back to the life that she was living because she just didn't want to live married anymore. Eventually, they were divorced and, and went on. But heartbreaking for me because I bear responsibility. So we need to be cautious not to throw our self, our own identity into this, this task. But the principle still stands that we need to have a sense of responsibility for one another. Because I need to see to it that you don't fall short. It's my job. So we said, well, don't judge lest you be judged. The passage is actually saying get your own stuff in order so that you can judge properly. Take the log out of your eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of their eye. Which means that ultimately our job is to take the specks out of each other's eye. But we need to make sure we have a clean filter that we can see clearly that we're walking rightly see to it that no one fails to obtain the faith. We can't change somebody's heart, but we can exert a lot of social and relationship pressure around them to nudge them in the right direction. And I think this is a principle that we need to pick up as brothers and sisters. This root of bitterness phrase is interesting because as really up to even this week as I was looking at this again, I keep thinking root of bitterness, and I'm thinking of all these great analogies about desert plants in Arizona and how they would pop up these weird root systems all over the place. And Microsoft co-pilot told me this week that root system can grow up to seven times wider than the canopy. Seven times wider? Some of those big trees in my neighborhood, that's a huge root system underground. And they do cause, they pop up and they do cause, tr- cause trouble, but what I was focusing on in my study was that, oh, this has to do with relationship bitterness. It's my relationship towards you because you're attacking me in some way, shape, or form. And, and that bitterness and relationship is what needs to be dealt with. Forgiveness really needs to be given because it's that bitterness that's going to destroy. But I don't think that's what it is. And I don't think we can go that direction because the bitterness that's talked about here is a hardness of heart towards God. And it comes out of the book of Deuteronomy. So let's go back there real quickly just as our last passage to look at together. Deuteronomy chapter 29. If you remember in Deuteronomy, it's the end of the wilderness wanderings. They're about to go into the promised land. And Moses is communicating the the law to them yet again. And he uses this same phrase. Pick up with me in verse 10. Deuteronomy 29. You are standing today All of you before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, your sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you. And as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, But with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Moses is talking about the root of bitterness being the root of bitterness that I have towards God that I am hardened towards him because I think I am walking rightly, even though I'm very much so rebelling from him or against him. When we're taking responsibility for each other, we need to be aware of that heart that looks to God and says, I'm doing okay, I don't need you. Because if we were to go with Moses, it's that heart that's going to be broken and judged we have a responsibility for one another to urge each other along, to press each other along in relationship, to, uh, to, to drive together towards the goal. But we have a responsibility for one another in that. But what is our path into this relationship? And this is where we're coming to a close here. I see three things. First, as we're thinking about our relationship with each other, we need to get in the know. There are some of you here this morning that all you do with us, and we're glad you're here, is come and sit in this room, and this is as much of an engagement you ha- as you have with us. I encourage you to just press past that into relationship this morning. You can go on our website. You can stop by the Connection Center. You can download the app. You can see what's coming out up, and you can just step out of your comfort zone and do something to engage. It may be that you're not really connected to what's happening in the life of the church, and you just need Some communication. Sign up for the email. If you're not getting that regularly, stop by the Connection Center and find out. We want to see how you can be more connected to the life of the church. Part of it is just getting in the know as to what is actually happening here. Some of you are already in that space, but you don't know what to do next. Maybe it's membership that'll be coming up here in the next month or so. Look into that. Membership is a a sacred commitment that we're making to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. But for some of us, we're already in the know, we're doing stuff, but we're not being known. So I encourage you, if this is you, where you're connected, but you're not really in relationship, take the risk and step out and extend yourself to others first. Sometimes we wait and say, well, if they reach out, maybe I'll reciprocate. Be the mature one and step out and say, you know what, I'm gonna open myself up to you. I'm gonna share myself with you. I'm gonna extend myself out whether you're in a group right now or you need to be in a group, I encourage you to step into a, a group of people, connect yourself with a group of people that you can take the risk of relationship because the risk of the relationship brings great reward on the backside. There's joy in being known. Lastly, we need to be people who are knowing. And this is the other half of that. Sometimes we go into group, we go into relationship, we go into whatever contract it is, and we just want to be a taker. We want as much as we can from the people around us. We have a lot to bear on our shoulders, and we just want, and we want, and we want, and so we take, and we take, and we take. I encourage those people who are in that category to stop talking, ask questions, and listen. Get yourself connected to someone so that you are getting to know them. It may be that they know you very well, but maybe you don't know them very well. Part of a relationship is you knowing them as well as they are knowing you. And the more that you are known and you are being known, you are being known and the more you are knowing, the more intimate that connection is going to be and the more valuable it's going to be in our pursuit of Christ-likeness together. Robin Dunbar was a psychiatrist that studied interhuman human relationship. And he discerned that the, uh, the number of people that you and I can have a meaningful relationship with is 150. It's called Dunbar's number. So in this group right now, there are probably 650, 700 people right here. It is not possible for us to know each other's names. Some of you who are highly intelligent may be able to memorize everybody's names, but for the common person, like me, I can't remember every name. We can't. So what we need to do is we need to break this up into smaller units and kind of in your mind think, okay, how how many people do I know? Have you ever done that? Don't look at Facebook or Instagram or that, because those are just connections and followers. Look at your actual contact list. How many of these people do I actually know? I know their names, I know their kids' names. I know their spouses' names. I know where they work. I know kind of what's going on in their lives. If you go down that list, see how many people you have in your, in your list of people you know. If we have a bunch of overlapping circles of 150 people, we can be intimately connected with everybody in the room. And we can have space for the hundreds and fifties that might also come to us in the future. We need to get in the know first, we need to be known, and then we need to sacrifice ourselves to know. We need to close our mouths and listen, because the relationship element is critical to the way that we exist together. Not easy, but essential. And so the question I leave with you is, what is your plan? As you have seen each week in this series, what practical step will you take today to prioritize the element of relationship in your walk with Christ? Let's think about that as we pray. Father, we all know people, but some of us don't know people. We don't know them intimately. We don't know them past the surface, and certainly they may not know us past the surface, but I pray that you would bring a sense of conviction in our hearts that we exist as a church family in relationship with each other. And I pray that you would help us understand what that means in practice. I pray, Father, that we would be moved even now to step outside of our comfort zone to engage the people around us. Just as we're praying a silly example, after we pray, stand up and meet the person around you that you don't know their name. You know their face, you say hi to them, but just get their name. Step out somehow. God, help us to do things like this. Help us to uh, just nudge ourselves in different directions to connect with people. I pray, Father, that we would see in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our school and our kid schools and the different engagements we have, I pray that we would, even this week, be more alert to humans, to people, to eyes, to faces, to names, to situations, to hurts, to pains, to joys. I pray that you would stir in our hearts an interest to walk together. I pray that these principles that we picked up from Hebrews would be ones that would be deep in us today and that they would carry us on as we seek Christ's likeness together. For those this morning that that need prayer, they need to be known in an area. I pray that they would come forward, that they would find somebody that wants to know them and wants to pray with them, wants to encourage them. I pray, God, that we would not leave this place without being changed in some way. We want to be more like your son and I pray that you would help us to be more like him not just now but every day until we see him face to face. The pure in heart shall see God and the peacemakers will be blessed. We pray these things in the great peacemaker's name, the Lord Jesus, amen.